Welcome to Pick Up and Deliver, the podcast where I pick up my audio recorder when I head out for a walk and deliver an episode to you while I stroll around. I'm Brendan Riley. Well, good morning, listeners. It is a lovely day here in suburban Chicago. The weather has dropped back to where it should be in November. You'll recall last episode, it was in the uh, 70s, roughly, uh, which is sort of um, 40 degrees Celsius, give or take. 20 degrees Celsius, I don't know. But today, it, ha- it is actually around 33 degrees Fahrenheit, which is around zero Celsius. So that, that number is easy to do. And the wind actually is supposed to make it a little colder. I, uh, I had a little delightful surprise. I put on my autumn sweater. I have this sweater that I bought in the Aran Islands in uh, Ireland, uh, which is heavy wool, double layer. It's super warm. It's... My favorite thing to wear as an outer layer, I love when it's still warm enough that I can wear this without being too cold before the temperature drops down, you know, below 20 and I need to put on my overcoat. So I put this on and I've been, the last few days, I've been missing my stocking cap. Well, it was stuffed into the sleeve of this jacket, so, or this sweater. So I'm nicely garbed. I've got my funny little wind resistant um, microphone pinned to my jacket. I'll post a picture of myself walking, wearing these things. So the continuing news has had me thinking about elements of human psychology. In particular, there is a a rather significant thread of people who support Donald Trump in the United States who believe without any evidence that our elections were substantially fraudulent. Now, as of this date, the only person arrested on charges of election fraud following the invest the various investigations that were started without um, justification is a man in Philadelphia who used his dead mother's ballot to vote for Donald Trump. So far, no more news of other malfeasance, but um, there's a lot of talk of it as though there is. And I, I know in American politics, there's a significant element of people who believe or disbelieve Donald Trump. And if you believe him, then you probably think that there was a fair amount of uh, election fraud. What I'm interested in talking about today is belief uh, in the face of evidence or belief in in contrary to evidence. I read some really interesting um, stuff about following up in an article about a, I think it was a postal worker, who had told the attorney general that he had witnessed fraud in mail-in ballots, and then upon further questioning, recanted that story. Of course, the conspiracy-minded will say he's been bought off or paid off or threatened off. But let's, let's take him at his word, or his second word, and, and say that he, he did, in fact, make, make up the story and then recanted uh, honestly. What's interesting about that is that studies have shown that hearing a thing and then hearing that that, that thing was recanted, often even having heard that that thing was recanted, the original idea we heard will stick in our head like our brain doesn't make the connection, doesn't make the correction, even if we're fully aware of it. Um, I'll try to find the links that I found to that study and put them in the 
the show notes, although frankly, I don't know that I'll remember to do that, except that I'm saying I'm gonna do that right now and that'll help me remember. So I'm interested in how this works out in gameplay. And I had a couple of anecdotes to kind of talk about how belief often overwhelms the evidence that we have or the experience that we have. The first is from my own family life. There is a common idea in my family that I win all the time. I will say statistically, I win more than my share. If you think about two-player games with my wife, we should be roughly 50%. 50%, it's probably closer to 60-40 to my favor, so I do win more than my share. Uh, in a three- or four-player games, I probably have higher than a 33 or 25% win ratio. So I do probably win more than an even split, but I certainly don't win all the time. But like I said, the common narrative in my family is that I win all the time. So when my wife or my daughter or my son beats me in a game, especially if they beat me uh, significantly, there is much rejoicing and celebration and uh, taunting of dad, which is fine. I don't, I really sincerely enjoy it. I think it's fun and I don't mind. But it's interesting to me that the, the, myth of the, uh, the myth of me winning all the time persists. And when one of them wins, oh man, I got lucky, or oh man, what a, what a great game I managed to beat dad. When dad wins, of course he wins. He wins all the time. Again, I don't mind. I don't want it to sound like I'm complaining about that. I'm not. What I'm interested in is that the myth persists. That the idea that I win every game and winning against me is a, uh, a supreme victory holds up over the idea that um, maybe I'm just, on average, slightly more likely to win. I bring that up because uh, I've been um, every other week playing games with um, a couple fellas on Tabletop Simulator. And one of the guys in the group, his name's Dan, has a history or a reputation of being a killer, of being a really good player, and he generally is. But we've played three games together on Tabletop Simulator, and he only won one of the three. Yet in my head, he's still the player to beat, even though he wasn't in two of the three games. And I'd be interested to look back, I haven't looked back at my stats of playing with him, to see how often he actually does win. So that's, that's one, the, the idea that we get in our head of somebody being really good at games or that's the person to beat, when in fact, you know, maybe not. The second anecdote uh, comes from a video that uh, Rodney Smith made about the word overpowered. So in, I think the last summer, so not summer 2020, but summer 2019, Rodney Smith of the TV of the YouTube channel Watch It Played had gone on the board game Geek Cruise, and as part of that, he had run a table for the Stonemeyer Games game Tapestry, which was brand new at the time, and was uh, adjudicating that table for the or was um, running that table for the the cruise. And so he said he taught and watched played that game of Tapestry maybe eight times. And he, in the video, he, I'm paraphrasing here, he says every time somebody won, especially if they won by a lot, in the conversation afterward, despite only having played the game once, people would declare that particular power overpowered, too strong. And he said what was interesting is from their perspective, it was. It, that strategy kicked, kicked butt all over the table. However, from his perspective, watching these games play out game after game, he saw that same situation and that same conversation happen over and over and over again, regardless of which faction the player who won was using. So there's a really interesting element where the player who wins 
uses a particular faction, they do well, everyone gets a perception that faction is overpowered. You know, I've had this sort of thing happen in other games as well. If I'm not careful when I teach, I can sometimes overemphasize the importance of one thing or another, and as a result, somebody will have a good game or a bad game because I did or didn't mention some aspect of the gameplay that I in the past had felt as overpowered. I guess I'm also reminded of uh, when I played Shipyard last. It was my first play of it. I really like the game. It's just very long. And in playing it, I had heard that the random tiles that you draw to score with feel overpowered or feel unbalanced because they're random when you draw them. And some of them have the potential to earn a lot more points than others. And so I used a house rule that seemed to be a common variant on, on Board Game Geek, uh, as recommended by Heavy Car Cardboard, of having the scoring conditions visible for all instead of private. And while I thought that was fine, it occurred to me later that you know, I was sort of giving into a common conversation about the game without having really explored it very much myself. So uh, I wanted to offer a couple more game elements that I, I feel like build into this idea of creating a perception in your mind that maybe doesn't track with the gameplay and how that motivates you to play in different ways. So to start with, I've played Blood Rage a few times. Not a bunch, maybe four. I like it, it's fine. It's not my favorite game. There's something about the way that the game uh, demands that you throw your forces in and they're going to get crushed. I don't know, I just it, it hasn't really clicked with me. The same is kind of true of Midgard, the sort of proto- Blood Rage game that I played from Eric Lang from Fantasy Flight, it had a similar feel to it for me of, I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite click with, with what it was. In Blood Rage, there are these big monsters that the game has, and a card will come out for the monster at some point, and you can then draft, take the monster, and then it's yours, and you get to move it around or whatever. And those are really cool, but often not nearly as significant as the size of the miniatures suggest. You know, a similar thing happens in, uh, to a lesser degree in the um, game, um, the one about Grim, Grim Forest. That game also comes with several large miniatures that have a big space on the table and do not very much. And I think one of the things that happens, especially with new players in Blood Rage, is we get tantalized by the big minis and we say, whoa, I want that big ogre on my team. When in fact we might be better off, better suited taking a card that makes our leader a little stronger or gets us an extra couple warriors or something. The ability to use, and I might be exaggerating here the other way, but my experience of the game was that having taken those, taken those little, um, having taken the monsters, that they didn't do much for me. And I suspect that I'm, I'm a little wrong, but also that the game led me to take those because they look so cool, but then they aren't actually that great. You know, another example of this kind of misleading experience is, or I don't even know if that's the right word, a thing when ambition or belief overwhelms evidence is in combo decks in deck construction games. Now, as a reminder, a deck construction game is like Magic or Netrunner, where you put together a deck before you begin the game and then you use that deck during the game, as opposed to deck building games, which I understand is a synonym, literally has no uh, practical difference in meaning, but in a deck building game, you build the game during the process rather than beforehand. Maybe it should be deck pre-construction, but no one uses that phrase. I'm going to from now on. Anyway, in deck pre-construction games, 
the lead designers of Magic the Gathering have identified a number of different gamer types. I've talked about this in previous episodes. But one of the types is the Johnny slash Jenny, who really likes to make combo decks. So this is somebody who will build an elaborate deck that's sort of a one-man band contraption or a Rube Goldberg machine that most of the time just does fine or doesn't do all that well. But every now and again, you get all the pieces in order, and then it's a, it's a glorious, churning mass of interconnected cards and hilarious chains of, of activity. And certainly that suits my style in Netrunner. I'm a theme, thematic deck builder and a combo deck builder. I love to make a deck where when I get the right combo of cards out, it will do something awesome. Or, you know, sort of push a, a deck to the extreme. Like I, I had a deck that, uh, in Netrunner that used Ken Tenma, who was a um, criminal who could get a... I don't remember exactly what the bonus was, but he got some sort of bonus by running events. And then I had this other card that was a, a three of called Oracle May, who let me predict the type of card that I would draw next. And if I drew it and was correct, then I got a thing. Some money, I think. And because Ken Tenma did stuff with events, I think he could play, out, play one event for free without using a click every turn or something. What I did is I made a deck that had as few non-event cards as possible. I think out of the 50 cards, 35 of them were events. It was just all events. So then what happened is I would get Oracle May out, and she would let me draw a card and predict what kind of card it was, an event. And Ken Tenma let me play that event for free. And so I would get this system going once I had Oracle May out, where I got this churn of cards that would let me do a whole bunch of extra stuff. And it was really fun. It wasn't that great a deck, but it was really fun. That's the sort of thing that I would do when I build, when I build a deck. But again, I think that kind of player is susceptible to the same kind of razzle-dazzle that the player who takes the big monster in Blood Rage is. That the game makes attractive an experience that you pursue, even in spite of the fact that you know, yeah, what my odds of drawing all four cards that I need for this combo and getting them onto the table are just ridiculous, right? There's an element of hiding from yourself the reality of the situation so that you can enjoy the fantasy of the situation. I think that um, games work in the other direction too, that once you've told yourself a thing or, or once you've perceived a thing in a certain way, it's really hard to undo. And a good example of this for us is our game In The Loop, which is a train-themed um, tile-laying game in which players are building the Chicago elevated train system. In The Loop is a really interesting game. We think it's really fun. But it's a challenge to play for a couple of reasons. And the big, the big challenge that the game presents is that you have a relatively limited number of choices with what you're going to do with the cards you have. And we built into the game some things you could do to manipulate the board, and no one would use them. We would inevitably find that new players would not use them because you had to spend your points to use them, and then complain at the end that they didn't have any choices in the game. And our experience, having played it a lot, was that we did have plenty of choices, but that you, when you didn't have choices, you had to buy them with these, with these powers. But no one ever wanted to use the powers. It was a very strange thing. And we actually ended up shelving the game because play, new player after new player would come back with, well, I don't feel like I have enough choices. And it doesn't help to argue with them about that they do. If the game doesn't present them with those choices in a way that makes them want to use them, then it's not working. So yeah, we shelved that game, which is a bummer because we developed it a lot. 
we got it really far along in the process, but it just couldn't, it couldn't make it. So it really begs the question of, as designers, how do you incentivize people to make choices that don't instinctively seem great? And how do you reduce the likelihood that people's early impressions will mislead them into thinking one thing about the game instead of another? These are crucial but very subtle elements that make for challenging development of games. And I think uh, really result in interesting, interesting games when you can uh, jump those loops. So this leads me into my coda, the end of my conversation here. And I was thinking about, as a player, as somebody who watches a lot of reviews and listens to a lot of podcasts, how do I think about this experience versus evidence approach? And I think part of it is I, I try to engage with media producers who use both sides of that. On one hand, one of my favorite review channels is Shut Up and Sit Down, whose main ethos is games are amazing experiences. They are better than anyone else in the market, I would say, for sharing the experience of a game. When they enjoy a game, when they like it, they are really good at telling you why they like it, what they like about it, and um, why you might like it. They're pretty good also at pointing out things that don't work for them or highlighting things that might not work for others, even if it wasn't a, a negative for them. So a game where there's a lot of backstabbing, they'll talk about the backstabbing, but they usually enjoy it. They'll talk about it in a way that makes it clear what's happening in case you aren't someone who enjoys that. But at the same time, I feel like their reviews are heavily colored by the experiences, not the quality of the game, but the experiences. And I think the highlight there, as, as Quentin Smith pointed out in his um, discussion of this game on Quentin versus Tom, why Tom is wrong video, go ahead and look at the Shut Up and Sit Down channel for that, where he reflected that his review of Ladies and Gentlemen much more reflected his experience playing it than the game itself that his group brought the game. And the game itself is pretty, is not great. But the experience of the game was really fun. And he explained why it was fun for his group. By contrast, the, one of the other review channels I really like the most is, Shut Up, is uh, So Very Wrong About Games. In this channel, Mark Bigney and Mike Walker approach games with a much more critical eye. And they're much more likely to talk about what in the game makes them like or dislike the game. That the broader experiences are much less likely to be important than the things they can attach to the gameplay itself. And while sometimes they like or don't like a game, they're very good at articulating why the game made them like it or dislike it. This isn't to say they aren't biased by their own experience, but it's far less likely that you're going to get an experiential uh, review from them as opposed to a gameplay review. That said, they're not great at helping to explain why games are exciting either um, because of that, that focus on mechanisms. So I don't really feel like I had a good, I have a good button for this episode. I don't really know what to say about the nature of belief about what you're playing and the nature of experience of what you're playing, except to say that I'd love to hear from you about this topic. Head over to BoardGameGeek Guild 3269 and drop a note in the forums. Let me know what you think of this topic. How does it connect to your experience? Are there games where you had an impression of the game and it shaped your experience of it? Are there other elements of game, game design or game, the game market itself that you feel work this way? I'd love to hear from you over there. You can also reach out brendan at rattleboxgames.com uh, and I will respond to you when I can. Thanks for joining me today. I hope that your next walk is as pleasant as mine was. Bye-bye.
forgot to grab a key. Brought to you by Rattlebox Games.